number of years ago, Nancy and I were at a wedding when I happened to mention to those sitting around the table that I was spending a lot of time playing online poker. I wasn't gambling. There was no money involved. It was one of those online poker sites where you play for points. I had become so obsessed, there were times where I'd be playing four tables at the same time on the same screen. Definitely not the best use of my time. That week I received a phone call from a brother in Christ who also attends RBC, who happened to be sitting at her table at the wedding with an invitation. Stephen, how would you like to spend some time with me reading through the New Testament? How grateful I am still today for that phone call. Starting with the Gospel of Mark, we would make our way through the New Testament each week. We would listen to audio commentary by a, uh, a Moody's Bible teacher who would compliment our reading. And then we would discuss what God has put on our heart. We would end the evening with prayer. And I must admit, it was a much better use of my time. And the online poker, it soon became a part of my past. This is what I learned from that time spent with my brother in Christ. Discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. Okay, this is what we're going to do. When I pretend to click, it was working in the dry run. When I do this, Balaji, just hit that button. I know you're going to have to follow now, all right? Let's go up one, page two of slide deck. Try again. Oh, it's there. No, Balaji did it. Thank you, Balaji. So as we continue our study in the book of Acts, I believe that the key verse, and I asked Joash the same thing earlier. I said, what's the key verse in the book of Acts? And he said, it's Acts 1, chapter 8. I said, I agree. And here it is on screen. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That, I believe, is the key verse to understanding the book of Acts. And I believe that there are three major themes in the book of Acts. Holy Spirit, commission, which is another word for instruction, and the church. And what I love about the passage that I get to teach on this morning is that each of these three themes is nicely interwoven in our text found in Acts chapter 19. Balaji, there we go. Now, at this time, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. It is one of three passages that we will be looking at this morning. The other two are in the Gospel of Matthew, 
But we're going to start in Acts chapter 19 at verse 1. And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. Now, wait, let's just stop there for a moment. Last week, Joash introduced us to Apollos. We, we read that he was a learned man. We uh, learned that he had a great knowledge of the scriptures. We read that he was instructed in the Lord. We read that he spoke with great fervor. He taught about Jesus accurately. But he knew only about the baptism of John. You see, his understanding of baptism was based on repentance and not on faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And it is clear that Apollos was missing a key piece of information. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they hear him. They notice this. And they reach out to him. They invite him to their home. And they explain to him the way of God more adequately. You see, discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. This verse also tells us that Paul came to Ephesus. Now, what do we know about Ephesus? We know it's the capital city of the Roman province of Asia, or modern-day Turkey. It has over 300,000 inhabitants. That's almost twice the size of the city or municipality of Rosemount, Rosemount Bible Church, where we are. So Ephesus would have been twice the size of the people living here in Rosemount. It was a city of healthy trade because they were close to the harbor. And um, because of that proximity, there was a lot of, the area was always bustling with people. But it was also a city that practiced magic and was deep in the occult. Uh, many visitors came to the city to see the Temple of Diana. Diana, also the, the Roman name for Artemis, known as the fertility goddess. And cult prostitution was an important part of their worship. And so Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, recognizes the need in Ephesus and will spend three years, three years ministering to the people. And what does Paul do upon arriving in Ephesus? We read, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, finding some disciples. Paul doesn't arrive in Ephesus and go straight to the beach or the golf course. Right? Instead, in verse 1, we read, finding some disciples. Just let that sink in for a second. I mean, why is this important to Paul? Why did he take the time to find some disciples? Let me suggest it's because it's what Jesus modeled and instructed his disciples to do. Blatchy. In Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, we read, then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them 
to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus, who has all of the authority in heaven and on earth, clearly says that is what we should do. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy, Ghost, the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. It is good. I mean, it is good to focus on the message of the cross. But let us not forget about the importance of discipleship that Jesus not only demonstrates, but also asks us to model. You see, Jesus would train his disciples, his disciples would train other disciples, and then those disciples would go and they would train other disciples. Discipleship is essential to the life of a question. And so we must ask ourselves this question. What is a disciple? I wonder if I was to pull this audience. So I see some people, don't look at me. I, I won't do it, okay? But if I was to ask you, what is a disciple? I'm convinced that we'd have many answers. And that they wouldn't all be the same. Let me suggest to you that this is what a disciple is. In Matthew 4, verse 19, we read, Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. First, we see that a disciple is someone who knows and follows Jesus Christ. A disciple is someone who recognizes who Jesus is and places himself or herself under his authority. So a disciple is someone who is positioned behind Jesus. Jesus said, come follow me. He does the leading. We are to follow. It's not always easy. Perhaps that's why we read in Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, Then Jesus said to his disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You see, Jesus is not just Savior who saves us from our sin, but he is also Lord the one whom, with all authority in heaven and earth, says, follow me. And so it begins with the head, to know God. And the disciples had some understanding of who Jesus was, and they were willing to follow him. And the second part of being a disciple, well, it moves to the heart. If it begins with the head, then it moves to the heart. Because Jesus says, come, follow me, and I will make you. I will make you. I will make you. So a disciple is not just about knowing and following Jesus, but it's also about being changed by Christ. Jesus says, I will make you. He is going to do the work. Jesus was going to change them by spending time with them. And that is so important. By spending time with them and by teaching them, knowing that if they reflected to the world who he was, many others would believe and become his disciples too. We know that today the Holy Spirit produces Christ-likeness in those who know him as Lord and Savior. And so a disciple is someone who knows and follows with his or her head, is changed to reflect Christ in his or her heart, and is a fisher of men, of 
people, someone who is committed to Christ's mission. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. The cause of Christ is to fish, to be fishers of men. The, Christ, the cause of Christ is people. Go after people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, 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 there's no limitations, whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's all inclusive. Once Jesus changes our heart to be more like him, we will care more about the things that he cares about. Our perspective will change. We will recognize that there are two types of people, those who are saved and those who are unsaved. Do we care about the unsaved? Do we care enough to reach out and to love them, even when they rub us the wrong way? And are we willing to use our hands and perhaps our feet and our abilities and our resources and our time to be fishers of people? So a disciple is someone, as the slide says, who knows and follows Jesus with his or her head, is changed to reflect Christ in his or her heart, and is a fisher of men, someone who is committed with their hands and their feet to Christ's mission. Returning to our text in Acts 19. Yes, we're still in verse 1. <laughs> and it happened, while Apollos was at Corinth, that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus, finding some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What an interesting question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Paul, as he spends time with his disciples, who notices that there is something missing in their lives. And he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. Imagine that. They were, they were not even aware that the Holy Spirit was given. Did, did you? I don't, I don't know. But maybe they're looking at each other, looking down, shrugging some shoulders. They had no idea. In verse 3, and he said to them, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. You see, these disciples only knew about John's baptism, a baptism that prepared them to receive Jesus as king, but their understanding, like Apollos, was incomplete. Maybe they had even received some of his teaching. We don't know. But Jesus Christ had already died. He was already buried. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven. And he sent his Holy Spirit. Those who were part of John's repentance, they looked forward. They looked forward to the coming of the Holy Spirit. Someday, in the future, it will come. But it was already available. It was, it was there now for those who believed. Verse 5. When they heard this, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. This baptism was an outward sign of an inward change. And next week, Nick, I just looked at Nick. Nick is going to have more to say about baptism when he speaks next week on our Baptism Sunday. 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice that one of the first things you do when you disciple is you baptize. And in verse 5, we read that they were baptized according to the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. This is the fourth distinct occurrence of the Holy Spirit given in the books of Acts. The first was at Pentecost, involved primarily the Jews. We read about that in Acts chapter 2. The second uh, was in Acts 8, at the laying of the hands of the Samaritans. Acts chapter 10, the third occurrence was at the home of Cornelius. And here in Acts 19, we have the fourth occurrence involving the disciples. Today we know that believers receive the Holy Spirit at the time of their conversion, that they are sealed by the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit empowers them for certain ministries and allows them to be bold in their faith. Ephesians 1.3, and you were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal. Oh, that's amazing. With a seal the promised Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verse 9, you, however, you, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed, if indeed, the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. You want proof that someone is a, Christ, a Christian? The witness of the Holy Spirit in their life is the proof required. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here we have a wonderful example of how discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. Paul, he invests in the lives of the disciples. He walks with them. He spends time with them. He notices that something is wrong. He notices that something is missing in their life. So what does he do? He teaches them. He baptizes them. In the name of the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And they do some supernatural things. What a blessing. Discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. Verse 8. And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months. For three months. Reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. For three months, Paul will reason with them intellectually. And he will persuade them by influencing their wills concerning the things of the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus both Jews and Greeks. Notice how some people respond to the gospel message or to the message of the kingdom of God. You see, in this passage, we see that both their intellect and their wills were hardened. Not only that, wasn't enough that they were hardened, but now they felt a need to create a disturbance, speaking evil before the crowds. 
It's hard to disciple people when their heads and hearts are hardened. And what was Paul's response? He withdraws and brings the disciples to Tyrannus, a Greek who some scholars say give classes in philosophy. He takes them away. He takes his disciples and he goes somewhere else. And what does Paul do there? Well, he spends two years, two years. What does he do? Two years, not how long, two years. What does he do? He's making disciples. He spends two years making disciples, just as Jesus had instructed. Go and make disciples of all nations. You see, there is a detail added to one of the manuscripts that suggests that Paul spent most of his time teaching in the afternoon. You see, in those days, people would work from 7 a.m. to 11 a.m., and then they would return home from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. in the heat of the day. And there they would eat, they would rest, they'd do whatever they had to do before they'd return to work from 4 p.m. to 9 p.m. In fact, more people probably slept at 1 o'clock in the afternoon than at 1 o'clock in the morning. And what is interesting is that it, it suggests that Paul most probably did most of his teaching between 11 a.m. and 4 p.m. when many others had opted to go home to sleep and to eat. And I'm, I'm just so impressed with Paul's eagerness to teach, Paul's eagerness to disciple. How easy it would have been for Paul to say, you know what? I just don't have the time. I'm just too busy. I'm just too tired. I'm just too exhausted. It's just too hot. I'm just too tired to teach. It causes me to reflect in my own life. How am I using my time for kingdom purposes, for discipling others? Because, brothers and sisters, what I've come to realize is that people will always make time for what's important to them. And what's the result? All who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and, Christ, and Greeks. The same brother in Christ with whom I would study scripture with would once again reach out to me. Stephen, let's meet regularly downtown for lunch. We can eat. We can walk around. We can share what God is doing in our lives. Let's spend some time in prayer. Stephen, tell me, how are things going with the youth ministry at RBC? What's new and exciting at Parkside? How are Nancy and, and the kids doing? Megan, she's, she's growing so tall. What, what can I pray for? Let, let, let me tell you what's going on in my life. St Stephen, how are you enjoying your time on the leadership practicum team with the elders? Stephen, continue to grow in the Lord. I'm so grateful that this individual found the time in his busy schedule to disciple me. Discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. Verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even 
handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. You see, Paul had the authority to perform signs, miracles, wonders. It wasn't Paul doing the miracles. It was, it was God performing the miracles through Paul's hands. And through the miracles, I believe that Paul's message was authenticated. Imagine for a moment someone getting a hold of Paul's handkerchief. Perhaps it's what he wore uh, around his head. It was, it was like a sweatband that, that would absorb the sweat as he worked. Or maybe his apron. He had an apron, right? And the one that had, held the tools as, as, a, as a tent maker. And, and they would take these things and, and they would bring it to the sick. And it said, and the diseases, uh, and the diseases left them and the, and the evil spirits fled. I am going to follow up on that laugh. Um, some may be asking... Can these miracles be repeated today? I would answer by saying, God is sovereign. And all things are possible with God. But the apostles of that day had supernatural powers that I don't believe have been extended today. That said, I still believe in miracles, especially if they are God's will. Let me share an example. It's been a while since I've been up here. Camp was a long time ago, but I still have a story in my back pocket that I want to share. You see, this summer at Parkside Ranch, Julian and Thomas, both from RBC, were both part of the maintenance team. And they were selected, I love the word, selected to be part of a campfire skit. Similar, she's not here. Similar to how Katie Brereton was selected to be part of the Mexican knife throwers last year at RBC's weekend retreat. Right, Dave? You'll mention, I, I went, I don't see, but that, that's what was going on here. And so Julian and, and, and Thomas, they did not know uh, what was the, the what, what they would be participating in. They had no idea. It was, it was a surprise to them. And so after some thoughtful deliberation, it was decided, again, without their knowledge, and among a very few select individuals, because we didn't want this surprise getting out, right? It was we really, there was tight lips, tight lips. Um, it was decided that they would be part of a chicken battle royale. See, each would be dressed like chickens. And there, there'd be a balloon that would be tied to their ankle, and, and they had to fight around like chickens and pop the other person's balloon. From the picture, you will notice, oh, Balaji, work with me, yeah. You will notice that an orange construction cone was taped to their face to replicate the beak of the chicken. You will see that their torsos are completely covered in molasses so that the bird feathers would glue nicely to their body. In each hand at the dollar store, in, in, the, in the animal section, we found, we found two squeaky chickens. They were like dog toys that they held in each of their hand. Um, on each foot, not in this picture for good reason, uh, we actually had a, a chicken foot that came from a chicken farm, uh, and it was tied to their ankle, and, and they had to protect that at all costs. And you see, these two men, they, they gallantly battled each other in the middle of this campfire, tried, tried to pop the other person's balloon, and in the end, Thomas was the winner of the first inaugural chicken battle royale. 
You can tell that's all the youth from camp clapping, right? Here is what no one knew at the time, including me. Wow. In one of the girls' cabins, over the past two nights before we did this thing at campfire, two young campers were praying to God, asking God to show them a miracle, asking God to reveal himself to them. And they, they prayed, and this is, this is what they, they prayed, God, if you are real, can you show us a chicken dance? God answered their prayer, not just with a chicken dance, but with the whole kid in caboodle, right? From the head to toe, the beak, the feathers, the chicken feet, the chicken dance, the chicken, the chicken toys. I mean, on the last night of camp, these two young ladies, they stood up at campfire and they shared their testimony with everyone. And they're telling everybody how God had revealed themselves through this prayer. And by answering their prayer to see this chicken dance, as a result of that, these two young ladies had, had asked Jesus to come into their life as both Lord and Savior. Coincidence? God incidence? Miracle? I'm going to suggest it was. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves, in verse 13, to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exercise you by the by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish priest, who did so. From these verses, you get the sense that Satan is doing everything possible to oppose God's work. You see this quite often in ministry. Paul is preaching. He's performing miracles. People are being healed. Evil spirits are fleeing the sick. And all the while, there's a group of men commanding evil spirits in the name of the Lord Jesus to leave those who are possessed. And the evil spirit in verse 15 answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. These men spoke the words, but neither they nor their words had any power. Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? I'd like to read what F.B. Meyer, a 20th century pastor and evangelist, had to say about this verse. This is what he writes. When the sons of Siva started on the demon, he turned on them and said, You little dwarfs. A society of, sorry, you little dwarfs. Who are you? I know Paul. I don't know you. I've never heard about you before. Your name has never been talked about down in hell. No one knows you, nor about you outside of this little bit of a place called Ephesus. He then writes, yes, and there is a question that was put to me today. He's asking himself, F.B. Myers asking himself this question. Does anyone know of me down in hell? Do the devils know about us? Are they scared about us? Are they frightened by us? Or do they turn upon us? When we preach on Sunday, or when we visit in the streets, or take our Sunday school class, the devil says, I don't know you. 
You are not worth my powder and shot. You can go on doing your work. I'm not going to upset hell to stop you, end quote. So the question I asked myself this morning and us is the following. As kingdom men and women, does hell shake every time our feet hit the ground in the morning when we get out of bed? Something to consider. Now we're doing great for time. Verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated that value of the scrolls, the value came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the, Lord, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In these verses, Satan is defeated. The people are seized with fear. The name of the Lord is, Jesus is, is held in high honor. In a city where the occult and magic was prevalent, where sorcery uh, was practiced, these individuals, they come, they confess their sins, they repent of their sin, they turn from their sin, they publicly burn their books, books that contain the magic spells, books that were part of their livelihood. It's, it's how they earn money to live. And, and this is how you would earn your living in a superstitious Ephesus. 50,000 drachmas, I calculated about several millions of dollars in today's value. So this was significant change. And what was the result? We read, the word of the Lord grew mighty, mightily and in power. You see, if we were to summarize these first 20 verses, you may recall that I began this morning by saying that there were three big themes of the book of Acts and how they were all interwoven in Acts chapter 19. First, we see the anointing of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples. Second, we see the Great Commission being fulfilled through the Apostle and the disciples. And third, we see the growth of the church in Ephesus as both Jews and Greeks. No, okay, stay there though. Stay there, Blagi, stay there. Um, both Jews and Greeks, they were confessing their sin and turned to the Lord. And it says, and the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And so that brings us to the famous, so what, as coined by our brother, Glenn Smith. And I see five principles, thank you, Balaji. I see at least five principles uh, based on this text. The first one is, have we made a decision to follow Jesus? Do we know Jesus as both Savior and Lord? For those that answer yes, have we been baptized as instructed by Jesus? Remember his words in Matthew, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. You know, I'm very excited about next week's baptisms. I encourage us all, as was mentioned during this morning's breaking of bread, we should all be praying for all those individuals who have made this decision to pursue this outward sign of an inward change. Second, are we as believers in tune with the working of the Holy Spirit in our life? 
If we desire to be like God, it's crucial that we live our lives unto Jesus by walking in line with the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus said, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. That was in the Great Commission. Go and make disciples. Everything I have commanded. Obey everything I have commanded. Is Jesus', is Jesus lordship, his authority, apparent in our life? Are we obedient to his word? Third principle. Are we committed both individually and corporately to discipling others? The model for discipling Jesus asked people to follow him. Paul sought people to disciple. Is there someone God is calling us to disciple? I've said repeatedly this morning, discipleship, discipleship is essential to the life of a Christian. Spending time with people is key to discipleship. That, that's how we get to know people. That's why I love small groups. That's why I love our small group. It's a place where discipling can happen as we walk together, as we share together, as we're open and transparent and vulnerable together in a safe environment. Four, how are we contributing to the church community? Each member, each person sitting here this morning and online, each member of the church has an equally important function as the, of the body of Christ. Everyone. And so what can we do to contribute to the church? I mean, are we present? Are we consistent? Do, are we here regularly on a Sunday? Is, is evangelism to a community that is unsaved, is that important to us? How are we helping out in the different uh, ministries based on our gifts, based on our spiritual gifts? How can we meet the needs of the community? Who's in help? Who's struggling financially? Who's sick? Who, how can we help out the poor? How can we contribute financially? Hasn't been mentioned in a while, but financially, this church requires money to keep the lights on. What can we be doing financially to help? Um, how can we support the church's budgets? And what about our missions? Are we praying for our missions? Or how do we pray for the leaders and for the deacons and for the elders and for all the helpers and the greeters and the sound people and the people with, with, with our children upstairs? How, how do we use our talents and our gifts to bless others with hospitality? Is hell scared every time we wake up in the morning we put our feet on the ground? And lastly, what in our life do we need to do or to burn in order for the word of the Lord to grow in power? Christ is either Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. And so if you are struggling with a particular sin, in your life, speak with someone you trust. Someone who will walk alongside you as you go forward. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. We are sure of this because Christ was raised from the dead and he will never die again. Amen? One last thing. In 2003, there was a, was it promise keepers? No, back, no, mm, no, no, 
Mm, Balaji. I didn't do the click thing yet. Balaji. Balaji. Back. Oh. Oh. Balaji. That was Balaji. Oh, we're going to have to talk. Balaji, we're going to have to talk. 2003. Oh, now you know the punchline. 2003. Preachers, conference, men's retreat, promise keepers, men. We're in the car, a whole group of We went down. We're driving back from Albany. We're in the car. And uh, I, I'm young, 2003. Well, is it much, much younger? And I was so amazed. The prodigal son, the man who spoke, man, he moved me. Very charismatic. We talked about it. But I was so confused. I was so confused because I could not understand. I could not understand. How did you gain that much knowledge? How, how, how did you preach? Where did you learn? Where did you get all that? You know, being in my, well, 2003, what would that have been? 24, 27 years old, just going, ah, and you want more, and you want more, and you want more. It's like, this is before the internet or the start of the internet. It's not like you had commentaries and you can just read them, right? All right. We get back to, uh, so we, I spoke about this in the car and come back to church in the following week. Nah. <laughs> if I start crying, you're in trouble. I've got this book. It's a commentary by William McDonald given to me as a gift. On the inside, it's written, and now you can hit that button. <laughs> June 2003, to Stephen McCarg. What a joy it is to see your growth in Christ. May this book simply be another tool to help your journey. I offer you Peter's words written in my Bible as a young man to encourage me. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15, signed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for the people that you put in our life that means so much. We thank you first and foremost for Jesus who did everything, including dying for us on a cross. This morning, Father, I just pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would continue in our heads and in our hearts and with our hands and our feet to continue to minister to others as you would, because you, you love us and you love us, them, and everybody is just so equally important. Father God, thank you for uh, your word in Acts 19, just pray that somebody here would be touched or blessed or moved by the power of your word, not by something I said, but by the power of your word, and that would be transformative.